And why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. This is our confession based on the word of God. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you've ever heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a brilliant man. At just 23 years old, he became a doctor. By 25 years old, he had undertaken specialist training. He was a member of the Royal College of Surgeons and the Royal College of Physicians. And then, at the age of 27 years old, Martin Lloyd-Jones left his career in medicine, his promising career in medicine, to become a pastor in a small, impoverished church in Wales. The Lord had laid on Martin Joyne's heart uh, his sinful nature. He had grown up in the church, but for the first time, shortly after he became a doctor, he really started to see his sin and guilt before God, and it started to weigh him down in spite of his great earthly accomplishments. Before long, God also, in his grace, laid on the heart of Martin Lloyd-Jones his deep love and mercy and kindness of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he came to the place where he didn't want to bend, uh, mend bodies any longer. He wanted, by God's grace, to help mending souls. And so he left behind the medical profession to become a preacher. And if you look into his life, uh, you'll see that God used him powerfully he preached at the beginning at a small church, but before long, hundreds were coming, then thousands. God used him powerfully to preach to countless people. And this church is still blessed today with many of his sermons and books and commentaries, including one on Ephesians. I relied on it very heavily for this sermon. He's got incredible insights. The Lord blessed him with a wonderful mind, and then he grabbed that mind and used it powerfully for himself. And I bring this up because this great preacher, he spent many years combing through many uh, texts in the Bible, preaching countless sermons, writing great commentaries. He had an extensive knowledge of the scriptures. And this great preacher, he said on this text that we just read, and on the theme that we'll be studying tonight, he said that he believes we can say, without any hesitation whatsoever, there is nothing more glorious in the entire range of scripture than the passage we are studying today. And he said, there is nothing more wonderfully stated anywhere in the Bible about the Christian believer than we have in the phrase we're examining this service. This is the supreme thing of all, he said, the highest glory, the most priceless thing that is true of us, of God's people. And that's a remarkable claim, isn't it? Especially when we realize we're talking about the rising, the, the ascending, the seating, and the returning of Jesus Christ. 
So let's consider what Martin Lloyd-Jones called the most priceless thing that is true of us as God's people. Under the theme, Jesus the Savior reigns. We'll see this in three parts. First, we'll see his sitting. Then secondly, we'll see our sitting. And then thirdly, we'll see his returning. So first of all, his sitting. And so often we as Christians, when we talk about the work of Jesus Christ, uh, there are certain events in his life that we focus on quite a lot, right? Like one of the ones that we focus on maybe the most is Jesus' birth, because we focus on it at Christmas. And that's a wonderful thing. We love Christmas, don't we? I love Christmas. It's a great time where we celebrate the coming of the Messiah into the world. Finally, the long-awaited Savior from our sins and our guilt is here, God in the flesh. We should remember uh, the incarnation, the birth and birth of Christ. Of course, we also focus on the crucifixion of Christ, and we should each week again. The atoning death of Jesus Christ for our sins. There we see his great love, that he would lay down his life for us. We should only preach Christ and him crucified. But likewise, it's important that we focus on another event. We can't leave Jesus Christ on the cross. Sometimes if you go around to certain churches, especially Roman Catholic churches, you'll see that they have a crucifix, and often Jesus is still on the cross. And Protestant churches, they very intentionally, they don't do that, partly because we don't typically portray Christ, but partly because Jesus isn't still on the cross, is he? We believe and we confess and we love that Jesus went to the cross. And we believe and we confess and we love that he beat the cross. He's off the cross. He was buried and then he raised again victorious. He was there, but he's not there. So we remember and celebrate Jesus' resurrection also. But yet there's more that Christ did after he came to this earth. There's more that Christ is doing right now and that we often tend to neglect. We don't talk much about Jesus' ascension, though you heard about that last week with Pastor Jeremy. And we speak even less of Jesus Christ's session, that is, his sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's the work that Jesus Christ is doing right now, today, in heaven, in his physical human body, just like yours and mine. This is a wonderful truth. And it's something that the New Testament emphasizes, but something that often we don't emphasize. And so we've got to correct that. We should walk in step with the Spirit, walk in step with the New Testament revelation. So I want to suggest to you that we should think a great deal more about the session, the sitting of Jesus Christ, your Savior and mine, at the right hand of God the Father, and find a great deal of hope and comfort there. Now, there are three main things that we confess when we say that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. First of all, when we say Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, we're confessing that Jesus Christ has won God's perfect favor on our on humanities, on the chosen one's behalf. So if you think about the right hand of a ruler, it's a place of great honor and privilege and prestige. And who has the great place of honor and privilege and prestige beside the great God, the creator of heaven and earth? It's none other than Jesus Christ, clothed with human flesh like yours and mine, our Savior. He is the one who is sitting there. And this is incredibly good news for day-to-day life. You and I, all who believe in him, we have a good friend, a great friend. And it's even better when our great friend has a close relationship with someone incredibly powerful, though. That doesn't work perfectly with uh, the illustration with Jesus Christ and God the Father. But as the Belgian Confession says in Article 26, we have an an intercessor with God the Father. And our intercessor, our mediator between us and God the Father is the one who loves us most in all creation. The Belgian Confession specifically says 
No creature in heaven or on earth loves us more than Jesus Christ. The one who came and laid down uh, his life for us. He is the one at the right hand of the creator God. The Belgian Confession goes on to say, No one will be more readily heard by God the Father than his own dear son. And so we have an audience with God the Father through Jesus Christ the righteous. And that is incredibly good news. He is the one, Jesus Christ, the one who loves us most, who is most readily heard by uh, God the Father. He's the one before the throne, perfecting your prayers and mine. Our prayers in our times of need, our prayers in our times of weakness, they go through Jesus Christ. So first of all, Jesus is sitting with God's perfect favor. Secondly, he's sitting there, and in a sense, he's resting. That's fascinating. We confess the wonderful truth of Hebrews 1 verse 13. After making purification for sins, for your sins and mine, Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The author of Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 10, verse 11, Every priest stands daily at his service, repeatedly offering the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus Christ came to earth, and as we heard, he came with a mission. A mission to make us right with God, to bring us back into his presence. And as we read in Hebrews 10, there's one reason why Jesus Christ has gone up and has sat down. It's because he's done. That's what we just read. Because he has offered a single offering and has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We can look up to heaven. We can see Jesus Christ sitting, and we can confess, I am perfected for all time because of his once-for-all sacrifice. And so when we confess that Christ is sitting, we're confessing that he has God's favor. We're confessing in a sense he's at rest. His redeeming work is done. But um, also, uh, we, can, we confess a third thing. It's not just that he's resting and not doing any work after accomplishing our salvation. He is still at work, and he works while he's sinning. Now that is, he is victoriously reigning on his throne. So at the right hand of God, if you read throughout the scriptures, especially throughout the Psalms, you'll see the psalmists often appeal to the right hand of God as the place of God's strength and his power and his deliverance. And if we look to the right hand of God, we see Jesus Christ himself. And he is reigning over the whole world. He's reigning over everything that occurs. This is what our text focuses on in Ephesians 1 verse 20. There Paul tells us, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to us, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. And this is fascinating because if you know the context of Ephesians a little bit, then you know the Ephesians and those who lived around there, they were quite worried about spiritual powers, the the powers in the air, the, the power of the devil, the power of demons. And Paul encourages them. He says, you know what? Look up to the resurrected and seated Jesus Christ. And see the demons and the devil that you're terrified of? Who is sitting 
far higher in power, in control over all of them on his throne. It is Jesus Christ who we know and who we love. And so often we're not really concerned as much with with the devil or with demons today, not in the same way the Ephesians were, though maybe we should take them more seriously than we do. But we have other cares and concerns, but often when we look at our cares and concerns, where are they? They're around us down here. And so Paul encourages us to look up, look up to heaven and see Jesus Christ, our Savior and a friend, the one that no one in all creation loves us more than he does. See him seated high above whatever problem comes our way, in perfect control. Our cares and our fears and concerns, they can't rock him off of his throne. He still reigns far above, Paul says, all rule and authority and power and dominion. When we get scared at nations raging, at kings setting themselves uh, against Christianity or against uh, anything else, uh, the foundations under us seem to shake, as the psalmist puts it we can look up and see that Jesus Christ is unmoved. He is still on his throne today and tomorrow and until he returns again. So in our sorrow and fear and temptation, we can look up and we can see who is sitting there. And we can confess again with uh, the psalmist that our friends, and our, uh, our friends may fail and leave us and our mother and father, they might forget us or forsake us. But Jesus Christ, the one who came down to save us, who laid down his life for us, the king of heaven and earth, he will take us in. No creature in heaven or on earth loves you more or me more. And he sits on the throne. And that is a wonderful truth for today. And so we've seen Jesus sitting. That's our first point. Now we're going on to our second point, which is our sitting. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this is where we find what he says is the supreme thing of all, the highest glory, the most priceless thing that is true of you and me, of us as God's people. As we look up to Jesus Christ, our dear friend sitting in heaven, we hear the truth of Ephesians 2, uh, verses 4 to 6, if you look at our text. There we read, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ and their Savior as united to him by faith, have you ever thought about the fact that you are seated in the past tense, not just in the future tense, you are seated in heaven with Christ? Joined with Christ in faith, you and I are sitting at God's right hand. Remember, we heard this is the place of God's perfect favor. We, united to Christ, sit in the place of God's perfect favor. Can you imagine that? We who so often fail and struggle with sin and weakness. We can fear that our sin makes us so that we lose God's favor. Brothers and sisters, we never lose God's favor. As those united to Jesus Christ by faith, we sit in the place of God's favor. Not even our sins can knock us down from there, being seated at the right hand of God the Father with Christ. Going beyond that, we heard this is not only the place of God's perfect favor for Jesus Christ and for his chosen ones, for the elect. This is also the place of his ultimate power at the right hand of God. 
And Paul makes it clear we share in that power as well. This is also the place of his perfect rest, as we heard. So brothers and sisters, do you believe that you have this favor of God? Because this is what enables us to begin to live the Christian life. Not fearfully trying to earn God's favor, we have God's favor. Do you believe in this ultimate power? Are you experiencing more and more this rest? Because brothers and sisters, Paul says without a doubt, you and I, all who believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this week as you go, just sit down, spiritually sit down and realize you're sitting on, uh, at the right hand of God the Father with Christ. You have been redeemed once and for all. And so don't fret, don't panic. Remember, Jesus Christ, how the price has been paid in full. You are perfect forever. Your sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west and as far as the heavens are above the earth. You are that safe in Jesus Christ. If someone wants to disrupt the salvation of one of God's elect, they're going to have to climb up to heaven and knock Jesus Christ off his throne. That is how safe the elect are in Christ. We have God's favor As one preacher puts it, when we look to the Christ in the scriptures, we can be overwhelmed. He is so holy and so pure and so good. It makes our hearts burn within us. But we believe by faith we are united to Jesus Christ. When he looked on Jesus Christ on the cross, he saw our sin. He accredited it to his account. When he looks at you and me now in Christ, he sees Christ's burning holiness, his goodness, his uh, his purity. That is credited to us already now. Finally, we have Christ's victorious reigning power. This is what Paul emphasizes in Ephesians 1, verse 18, if you still have it open. Paul says that he's longing, he's begging, he's praying without ceasing that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, all the Ephesians, but also us today, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know, among other things, but primarily, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The same unimaginable power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, brought him out of the grave, who lifted his physical body up into heaven, Paul is saying that same power of the Holy Spirit dwells in all believers, in you and me. That is the power that we share in with Christ. Do we believe in this victorious reigning power of the Holy Spirit? Martin Lloyd-Jones says that he is convinced that truly knowing and trusting this would revolutionize our lives as Christians. Because in this world, we're weak and we're so easily shaken. Uh, The world can scare us quite easily, can't it? And it's not just the world outside of us, but also when we catch too good of a glimpse into our own sinful hearts, that can scare us too. Devil, the devil and demons, they can terrify us, knowing they are by nature our enemies, our oppressors. But brothers and sisters, we are seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus Christ. That means we have, we share in his definitive victory over all the world, the devil, and our own flesh. So just think for a moment, especially about our greatest enemy, the devil. Peter tells us he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Can you picture a roaring lion nearby? How frightening that would be. He's the one who's so powerful that he dragged down Adam and Eve from perfection 
uh, with God into sin and death and rebellion against God. The devil, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, is the one who is so bold that he did not hesitate to rebel against God himself to corrupt his beautiful creation and bring many angels down with him. And yet, brothers and sisters, how great is your and mine victory over the devil already now, now that we are seated with Christ far above him. Well, James 4 verse 7 tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will run away in fear. Not because he's afraid of you, not because he's afraid of me, but he's afraid of the one that we're in, the one that we're seated in, far high above his power, the realm of his reigning. The devil is terrified of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross. He has dealt the devil a death blow. If we resist him in faith and in trusting in Christ, James 4 verse 7 tells us he will flee. The living knowing that Christ is seated in heaven and we are seated with him once and for all will radically transform our lives. I think there's one really great example of this. Well, there are many, but I thought of one. Uh, William Carey. Uh, I mentioned him before. At a time when the church seemed completely disinterested with mission work and evangelism, William Carey rose up a powerful plea for the church, you might remember, uh, a call to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, or at least to try. And his plea and his slogan was this. He called for Christians in the church to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. That is still the slogan of uh, the mission organization that he started till today, a hundred years later to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And when people hear this, sometimes they get kind of uncomfortable because it almost sounds like putting God to the test, almost, doesn't it? So we can't control God, and we can and we should work hard for him, but we believe that only God gives the growth. But we need to listen carefully to what William Carey is saying because he would agree with that absolutely. He didn't say attempt great things for God, and expect great success from God or something like that. He said the exact opposite, didn't he? He said, expect great things from God, and so attempt great things for God. And so brothers and sisters, to get this, we need to think for a second. What are the great things that we expect from God, that we are rooted in, that allow us to live out our lives for God? But brothers and sisters, knowing the scriptures, knowing the nature of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we expect incredible grace from God, don't we? Incredible grace. We expect full forgiveness for all of our sins and shortcomings. Not because we earned it, not because we should be able to expect it, but simply because Jesus Christ has come and with his own blood and body he has paid for it and he has promised it promised life in his name for any who believe. Brothers and sisters, we expect eternal life in the presence and overshadowed by the glory of God. Again, not because we deserve it, but by mere grace he has promised it. And so we expect it more than anything in the world. We expect that even when we fail, even when we sin, even when we fall so short that we can't look ourselves in the eye, we expect we can go to Christ and he won't cast us out. Why do we expect that? Because he said so. 
We expect that in ourselves we will only find sin and death. But we expect in Jesus Christ we have life and we have it in abundance. We expect that by his power and his mercy and grace he will do what he set out to do and present us holy and spotless and blameless without wrinkle or spot in in God's presence. We expect that God will keep every one of his promises, that he will prove perfectly faithful. We expect all evil will either be averted or it will be turned to our benefit. Again, because he said so. We expect that without our Father's will, not a hair can fall from my head. We expect that Christ himself is reigning. He's our ruler in control of all things. We expect the utmost love and care from our Heavenly Father because we are his dear and beloved children in Christ. And we expect that the one who has graciously given you and me, his son, Jesus Christ, will also graciously give us all things. And there's nothing in life or in death that can separate us from his great love. And brothers and sisters, expecting all these, and you can continue going through the scriptures and see there are so many more things we can expect. That enables us to go out and attempt great things from God. We know our life is hidden with Christ in heaven. We know our future is sure. We know we can count on God's grace today and every day again. And so we can attempt great things for God. William Carey, reading the scriptures, he expected the gospel would go out to the ends of the earth and that God would claim for himself powerfully people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And so expecting these great things simply because God said this is what he's doing, he was willing to attempt great things, to give up his life, to go overseas to India, even though he knew perhaps God wouldn't be pleased to use him. God didn't grant William Carey success, but he promised his gospel would find success. And by God's grace, he blessed William Carey's ministry tremendously. Hundreds, thousands of people came to know the Lord. To make this a little bit more concrete, I have a friend recently who saw a need in his church that he's a member of. And it was out of his comfort zone, but he stepped up and he volunteered. And when he was asked about it, because it was out of his comfort zone, he simply said, well, the Holy Spirit hasn't let me down yet. Isn't that wonderful? He knows God doesn't promise him specifically success in that role. But he knows that God promises to equip his people to use them in tremendous ways. That just because they're weak and they don't have gifts, that doesn't mean that he's weak. That God will powerfully call weak people and equip those weak people. And so, my friend, he stepped out in faith. He's willing to attempt great things for God because he expects great things from God. And brothers and sisters, the same is true of us. Are you and I, are we willing to step out of our comfort zone? Will we consider that God is calling us to offices that we don't feel qualified for? He's calling us to the task of deacon or or elder or minister or some other task and trusting that with the calling, God will provide the equipping. Expecting great things of God in Christ frees us to attempt great things for God in part because if we fail, so what? If we fail, does that jeopardize our salvation? No. Does it ruin our life? Our life is hidden with Christ in God. We can go out and attempt great things for God because we expect these great things from God. As our catechism says, through him, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our friend, the Father governs all things. 
And the way the glory of our Christ, our head, benefits us, the Catechism summarizes, says that first, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. And second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. And so we can attempt things that we could never do in our own strength for God. Seeking to do the works that Paul tells us in our text, that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If he prepared them beforehand for us, he will help us to walk in them, won't he? We have seen Christ is sitting, and we are sitting with him. But that leads us to our third and our final point, and a much shorter point than the other two. Uh, we uh, don't just believe that Christ is sitting and that we are sitting, but we do believe also that Christ won't remain sitting. Soon he is returning. That's our third point. Already now, but going on forever, this is God's plan, according to Ephesians 2, verse 7. And you should look at that text. It's a really remarkable one. Because there, God explains the, the reason why he's doing all the great work that he's doing. I'll read a few verses of context as well. God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that... And this is God's ultimate purpose. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And this is God's great plan of history. It's to vindicate his name. Remember at the beginning, uh, the beginning of Genesis, the devil challenged God. He called him a liar. He questioned his nature and put, uh, put it to the test. And well, we see that God is going to show He's going to show his nature. He's going to show himself powerful and righteous and just and how he judges the devil and his enemies once and for all. But he's also going to show himself unimaginably kind and compassionate and gracious now and forever. And brothers and sisters, the way that God is going to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness is in us, in you and me. God wants to showcase us forward so he can show his grace and mercy and kindness. And I hope we can see he's already begun to do that. He's done a tremendous work of that in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ showed God's holiness and majesty, vindicating his goodness and justice that he would not leave our sin unpunished. But it also showed his perfect goodness and trustworthiness and love towards bruised reeds and smoldering wicks like us. And God's not finished with us yet. His plan is to keep showing forth the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us for all eternity. And we, along with the angels, will spend all of eternity learning about and glorifying God for his kindness, the immeasurable riches of his grace, his amazing love and justice and redemption, especially shown in the life and death and person and work of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, that showing forth of the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness, that starts already now. As we eagerly await, as judged from heaven, the Catechism says, the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and removed all the curse from me. He bore it body and soul for us. But now we look forward to showcasing the riches of his grace, not just in the future, but can't you and I show forth the riches of God's grace and mercy to our kids right now? Can't we show forth the riches of his mercy and grace to our brothers and sisters in Christ right now? This is God's plan for all of eternity, to show forth his kindness and goodness and grace in us. And brothers and sisters, we can start now. 
with our neighbors and our friends and our church family, showing God's goodness and kindness and glorifying him for it. Brothers and sisters, we ought to consider, are we showcasing it more and more? This is our ultimate purpose, God says. We don't have to wait. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's the one who saw this, isn't he? He saw it beautifully. He saw an opportunity to showcase God's goodness and grace, and he could have done it as a doctor. Some are called to be doctors. He felt called to do it as a pastor. And you have to imagine, people in Martin Jones' life, they must have thought he was crazy. He went through all that schooling. He spent all that money, all that work, a promising young career. They must have insisted, you can do this as a doctor. You can glorify God in this way. And absolutely he could have. But he felt called to be a minister in a small, local, poor church. You have to imagine that he probably felt at times incredibly inadequate. Am I sure that I'm up to the task? I am confident he would tell you, I am not up to the task on my own. But if God is calling me, he will equip me. And who am I to say no? And this was Martin Lloyd-Jones' concern for all his, his life, showing forth the kindness and grace and glory of God. As he reached the final days of his life, he wrote a note to his family, and he asked them, Please do not any longer pray for healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. And until Christ returns or calls us home, we can pray too that God will use us in such a way that people look at our lives and catch a little glimpse of Jesus Christ, his goodness and grace and mercy and kindness, so that we might already know, or so that God might already now begin to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Amen.